I would invite you to return back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, as we study the book of Acts. I appreciate Philip last week filling in uh, while I had the privilege of being at Honey Rock. And uh, it was a great weekend at Honey Rock with the young people. I'm just so encouraged. had a wonderful time with uh, 70 plus high schooler and junior hires and also uh, with the youth staff. We have a wonderful youth staff and I am just so appreciative of all the energy that they put into making sure that it was a, a Christ-centered time where biblical godly relationships can be fostered and, and uh, truth can be just invested into people's hearts. What a, what a great weekend. So I was glad and Philip, thank you for your hard work in uh, doing this and filling in. You know, and asking you to layer that on top of your job. So thank you, brother. Appreciate it. But we are studying back in Acts. We're going through Acts slowly but surely, making our way through Acts. And we are going to be looking at a passage that Jeff read for us, verses 17 through 42. And uh, kids, here's what's going to happen. If you're drawing pictures, continue to draw pictures. And, uh, but I'm not going to be up here up front afterwards but uh, Mr. Johnson is. So if you draw your pictures, he'll be up here and hand them to him and he'll get them to me. So, uh, and if you're visiting here uh, and you want to draw a picture uh, of the, anything in the passage, you can bring it up and we're collecting them. And eventually we'll have a little wall of artwork and I love what you guys are doing. So please bring them up here, but I won't be up here afterwards. So don't try to hunt me down. I'm going to be involved with uh, a class afterwards. So, but uh, before we begin, let me just Open our time in prayer. God, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would, uh, your word would conform us to your image, Lord. Help us to uh, really hear the power of this passage and to, to see the power of the gospel and uh, how it just changed these people's lives, Lord. And may it give us confidence and boldness to live our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I was looking at this passage, and this passage always makes me think about, um, actually, the insecurity we have as believers in the world. Here's what I mean by that. I remember one time, I was in the Air Force, and, uh, and I was with some guys back in our supply room, and we were doing some inventory, and these two guys were somewhat hardened guys. They had saw combat in Vietnam, and they had kind of pretty cynical view of the world, and, uh, and the whole, if you remember this, the Jim Baker scandal was going on. So it was the talk. If you have no idea what that is, it was just a, a big scandal among religious television people and involving a lot of debauchery and sin. And, and it was the talk of the, of the time, if you remember. Everybody was talking about it. And uh, these guys were in the back room. They were talking about it. And, and uh, I was a Christian, and, and I was back there. And these guys scared the daylights out of me. They were just guys that were very intimidating guys, and, and they were talking about how if, if really they were ever in a room with a Christian, they would cut his heart out. And I mean, they were just, you know, they wouldn't really have done it, but, but they just were being whatever they were doing. So, but I sat back there counting the stuff in the back room while they were just getting all, you know, ramped up about the Jim Baker scandal. And, and I just cowered. I just cowered. I said nothing. At one point, one of the guys even asked me, are you a Christian? Because I wasn't saying anything. I just sat there quiet. And I, I mean, I just, just, it was complete cowardice. No bravery at all. 
And, uh, and maybe you guys have been in situations similar to that, where there's a moment when you should say something, or you could say something, but you, you don't. And you're completely afraid to do it. I read this passage and I think about this because I, was, uh, because I think there's a truth here that Luke is trying to show us about the formation of the church. And it's a very important truth that I think he's really trying to get us to see. And it's a truth that addresses something in us, a fear that we have. Because we don't share, I believe, for probably two reasons. Probably multiple reasons, but maybe two core reasons. One is we're just afraid of people. And the second is I don't know if we have confidence to believe that the gospel really is powerful enough to change a situation. I'm not certain I would have thought at that moment, I don't think I was thinking at that moment, that, you know, if I proclaim the gospel, these two hardened combat veterans who have the cynical view of life could be changed. I have to share it with them so they could be saved. I, don't, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, oh, I don't want to be painted with the Jim Baker brush, you know. I don't want to be seen as a wacky guy like, oh, I'm scared. The confidence that the gospel is powerful enough to change somebody. I wasn't thinking that. And I wasn't really thinking about the glory of God. I was thinking about the glory of myself and the fear of man. And so there's an element of the fear of man and and not a belief in the power of the gospel that makes, makes me at times and have made me in the past many times shrink back. This passage really addresses those issues. It addresses something. It addresses this one simple truth, and this is really what I, I think you'll see here in this text, that God backs his gospel up with his power. So, so he sends people out with his message, but he's going to make sure everybody knows that he's backing that message up. And that the very power of God lies behind and enforces the very message we're called to proclaim. So as a result, we don't have to be afraid. We can be bold. We can be bold. So I want us to see this. And so we'll, we'll follow through the storyline here. Pretty simple. That's what the outline is. Basically, these guys get arrested. After they get arrested, there's a moment when they're told that they've got to proclaim the gospel. And they do that. And then there is this reality of this Gamaliel who makes this powerful declaration that we need to see. And in all of this, I, I do want you just to catch this point. Simple point here. That God backs his gospel up with his power so you don't need to be afraid. You don't have to shrink back. You can actually be bold. You can have confidence. Even though the message will seem foolish, even though living the gospel seems foolish, it actually possesses the very power of God. That's what I want you to see here. So let's begin. Let's follow the storyline. Let's get ourselves caught up as to what's happening here. The Spirit of God has come upon the the church. The apostles are proclaiming. Thousands are getting saved. They're hanging outside the outer courtyard of the temple. 20, 25, 30, 35,000 people. I mean, just by the thousands, people are coming to faith in Christ. The apostles are standing up every day proclaiming Jesus. They've been, Peter and John have been arrested once, have been told, don't do this or bad things could happen to you, but they continue to preach. And now we're at this moment that we're going to see the religious institution, how Judaism, the Jewish leaders are going to respond to this. Because now it isn't just a few thousand people. 
we know that there's probably, best estimate, maybe 35,000 people that have faith in Christ, that every day are gathering outside the temple proclaiming Jesus. This is getting the attention of the religious leadership. Look at verse 17 with me. But the high priest rose up, all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So the high priest, he's the guy who's in charge of the whole temple. And the whole party of the Sadducees, that was the religious system that basically, in simple terms, managed the temple. A couple things you need to know about them. The Sadducees did not believe that anybody would ever be raised from the dead, that there was no resurrection after death. They didn't believe in any kind of supernatural world. Very rationalistic people. Just very rationalistic. You live in the moment, a bit on the liberal side in much of their theology. And they were part of the temple worship. And, uh, and so the head of the temple, with all of his men, are jealous. Why are they jealous? Because people are leaving the temple worship, and they're standing outside the temple. They're not going in. They're not offering sacrifices anymore. They're not participating in this. The, the power is shifting from inside the temple to outside the temple. That's what's going on. Because these guys are hanging outside, and the apostles are standing up on this porch declaring Jesus, and people aren't going in, and the high priest is starting to notice something bad's happening. You know, all of a sudden, it's all going on outside, and no one's coming in anymore. And notice what it says. They're jealous. They're losing their power. They're losing their position. And so what do they do? They arrest these guys. They publicly arrest them. So they basically, you know, the apostles are up on this porch, And so they send the guards, and they manhandle the 12. All 12 are getting arrested. They manhandle all of them, drag them down to a prison that's in the middle of the town. And it was called the public prison. It was the place you put somebody to shame them, to humiliate them. So these guys decide, we are going to publicly shame the apostles. Toss them into this prison. So they're there. Okay. Now, let's see what happens. Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Okay, a couple things you need to know to help the story make sense. Temple guards had a very simple job. You, temple guards, prison guards had a simple job. Keep the people in the cell. Now, in order to motivate them to keep the prisoners in the cell, there's just a couple rules. They basically said, if the prisoners are gone, if they're gone, if they leave, if, if, we, if you take a bribe and you let them out or whatever, we will kill you. So guard, it's pretty simple. If we show up in the morning and they're not here, you're dead. If we show up in the morning and you're asleep, You will not wake up. We will kill you. Stay awake and keep them in the cell. Keep that in your brain there. It will become important later. Okay? Because obviously we see what happens. This angel shows up, opens the doors, and lets them out. Okay? Now there's a a miracle that's, that's forming here besides the obvious one here. You'll see it here in a second. But what happens? When he lets them out, the angel says to the twelve, Go back to the temple... And notice what he says. Speak to the people all the words of this life. Here's what he's saying. You tell them 
everything about Jesus. Everything. Hold nothing back. You see, they are to go to the seat of Judaism and show how it all points to Jesus. And they're not to hold it back. They're not, to, they're, not, they're not to say, hey, listen, you're starting to get people a little, little, little kind of upset with your preaching about Jesus. Why don't you dial it back and just, just love on them for a while, and they'll see Jesus in your love. Right? The angel doesn't say that. He doesn't say, just, just, they'll see your lifestyle, and then they'll ask. They'll see who you are, then they'll ask. No, he says, you go, and you go back to that place, and you proclaim Jesus in all of his fullness everything about life. Don't hold anything back. This is not a moment to be timid. This is a moment to be thorough and exhaustive. Tell them everything. Okay, so that's what's going on. Now, let's see what happens. Keep that little little tidbit that uh, I told you about the guards in mind as we read this next section. Let's finish up the rest of 21. Now, when when the high priest came and those who were with him They called together the council and all the senates of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison doors securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Okay, now you got to catch what's happening here. Sadducees call a religious council meeting. So now you have a representative from every single sect of Judaism. Sadducees, Pharisees, the priests, the Levi, the scribes, everybody. This is the full council, the whole deal's there. Basically, they're saying none of us get along, but we all need to get in a room together and decide what we're going to do because we're losing ground. We've arrested these 12 guys And uh, we need them to be presented in front of all of the religious leadership. And so they go back to get the 12. And here's the picture you got to get. The temple officers walk down to the prison, and they tell the prison guards, open the doors. And the prison guards go, okay. And they open the door, and they go, uh uh-oh, they're not here. Now, this is a miracle. Because just for a moment, ask yourself this question. If you were a prison guard and you actually witnessed an angel opening the door and letting the guys out, would you hang out by the prison door? No. You would be gone because you know you're going to die. These guards did not see. This is what I think Luke's trying to show us. These guards did not see the angel open the door and 12 guys walk past them. They're sitting there thinking they're in there. I don't think there's one guard. That's why Luke is making the point. We found the prison door securely locked and the guard standing outside the door. But no one was inside. Everyone at this moment realizes something miraculous just happened here. Something huge just happened. Look at verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them wondering what this would come to. I need to give you a little Greek lesson here so you can understand something. In the Greek, whenever there are two kind of descriptive words put together, it's not redundant. In English, we would call that redundant. In Greek, it actually meant to be emphasis. And so greatly perplexed. 
you put those two words together, I'm trying to figure out like what would be the English modern equivalent of greatly perplexed. The only thing I could come up with is probably pretty lame would be like seriously freaked out. That's probably the best like contemporary language and it's probably not even contemporary, right? Probably shows them 47, right? <laughs> seriously freaked out. <laughs> but that's kind of the picture here. They are completely freaked out. This, I don't think these guards are getting killed because I think they all understand something really weird just happened. And notice what it says. And they're wondering what this would come to. Like, okay, something is about to take place here. We don't like it, right? This is how hard-hearted they are, though, right? Instead of repenting, they don't. They just, they're still fighting this thing down to the end. But there it is. There are these, these apostles now. They've detained them. They tried to ta- detain them, but they couldn't. Now, this leads us to the next kind of shift in the story. And this, this, this shift in the story now deals with this mandate that's from God, this divine mandate. So let's look at it here, verse 25. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you've put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Okay, so the, the whole council seen together. They, they know something big's happening. Somebody runs in and says, the 12 are back. They're preaching again. Now, these guys have played their hand, right? I mean, you get into the politics of this. They played their hand. They tried to do a public thing to publicly shame these guys. But this is coming back at them now because since you dragged them out in front of everybody and harassed them and tossed them in prison, and now the next morning they're standing there saying, an angel of the Lord, you know, released us, and we're going to tell you about Jesus. They have more of a following now, and they realize the people's hearts are going to be all in on this, and so they're scared to death. They really are. They're scared. So they gingerly bring these men back because they know one thing, that people are going to stone them. And you've got to catch this. This is where maybe a little bit of uh, Old Testament understanding will be helpful in this story. Um, stoning was reserved for people who violated the law of God. So if you were in violation to God's law, you were stoned. So you have to catch this, what's happening here. The temple police go to get the guys, but they've realized, the temple police know, a miracle has just happened. Only God could perform this kind of miracle. And all the people will believe that this is from God. So if the temple guards go and arrest them again, the temple guards will be in appearance of being in opposition to the will of God. And why do you get stoned if you're in opposition to the will of God? So the irony of all this is, these guys are still fighting the apostles. They still fight this message. But they can't deny that God's behind it. And all the people will see that God is behind it. And they're even aware that they will appear to be against God and will be worthy of being stoned. And so I hope you see this little logical thing that's going on here. But it just shows that they can't deny that God's behind us, even though they resist it. And so they bring these guys back. Notice what happens, verse 27. When they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. And here you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
Okay, you see what they're saying there. Okay. Hey, Peter, John, you stood before us. We told you don't do this. And here you are running around telling everybody in Jerusalem about Jesus and telling everybody we killed him. Why do you stop that? We're telling you to stop preaching that message. Why do you keep telling everybody that we killed the Messiah? Well, notice what Peter says. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Now, this answer is a very important answer. A lot of people want to use this, and they talk about, like, this is a good moment where pastors launch off into civil disobedience, and when can you disobey governments, and things like that. But if we go off in that direction with that verse, which a lot of people like to do, we'll miss the point of it. What's the point of the verse? The point of the verse is that this is God's message, and we can't mess with it. That's what the point's about. This is God's message. I can't, I'm not allowed to rewrite this message is what he's saying. You're telling me that I shouldn't tell people Jesus is Lord. I shouldn't tell people you crucified the Messiah and that on the third day God raised him from the dead and that he ascended to heaven. I'm sorry, I'm not given that authority. God did not say, well, this is true, but apostles, do what you want with it. This is about the truth. It's not just about how I relate to government. It's about truth, and it's about saying, I can't mess with the message. It's God's message. This is what he's saying. It's God's message. And then Peter, in an act of incredible boldness, because my flesh might have, well, my flesh wouldn't even got me this far, but, but, but verse 29 is pretty courageous to me. But then the power of the Spirit takes over, and he launches into a sermon. Listen to this sermon, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There are five things I just want to show you in his message here. Just kind of highlight them. These are really powerful things. But look at these these five things. The first thing that he references is the resurrection. He starts off with this, right? The God of our fathers raised Jesus. So he's first beginning by saying, listen, God accepted his sacrifice, and it was perfect, and God raised him from the dead. Now, in this room are Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. They don't even believe in miracles. they got these miracles going on, and Peter's standing there saying, God raised him. He really did. He accepted his sacrifice. Even though you tried to put him down, God raised him. So he starts with the resurrection. But then he moves from the resurrection to guilt. Notice, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. You are guilty of hating and rejecting the one whom God has chosen. So he goes from resurrection, right, to the hope, to guilt. But you've rejected him. Now it's important to understand something here, by the way. Because this is the key to everything. When we deal with guilt, we deal with, with, with the reality of guilt, of sin. The guilt of sin, we have to understand it, not just, first of all, dealing with people and all the things that they've done in their life. A lot of times when we share the gospel, we like to focus on the things you've done. So we say, well, notice, you know, you were disobedient to your parents, or you were probably mean to school teachers, or you, you know, and people, well, no, I wasn't. Well, that wasn't that bad. And we, we get in these little arguments. But the first place when you're sharing the gospel with somebody 
to deal with guilt is in relation to the lordship of Christ. You could be the best person in the world. Maybe you came out of the womb and you didn't even need a diaper changed. Like you came out potty trained, right? And you came out eating five square meals a day perfectly as an infant. And you never cried. Maybe you came out perfect. I'll give that to you. But I'll tell you one thing you did not come out of the womb doing. Bowing your knee to the lordship of Christ. And this is the starting spot of guilt. Is Christ Lord? And this is where he's saying, do you understand God raised him from the dead? Do you understand you hate him? Do you understand you hate the one who is Lord and Savior? Let's start there. See, you live your life for your own glory. You live your life under your own rule. You live your life under your own agenda. You go to bed at night listing off all the things you want to accomplish tomorrow, and then you get mad at everybody the next day who gets in the way of what you want done. You live as the Lord of your own universe. There's where guilt begins, right? This is what Peter's saying. I'm not going to deal with all your individual sins. We'll deal with those later. We're going to start with your sin, that you do not bow the knee to the one who rules heaven and earth. Okay, so we start there, right? Resurrection, guilt, then exaltation. Notice what happens. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So he's saying, what did he do? He exalted him to actually be Lord. He is Lord. And what we're trying to establish in the premise of the gospel is to say, do you realize Jesus isn't just an idea He isn't just a bridge to heaven. He's Lord of heaven and earth. Excuse me. He's Lord. He's exalted as Lord. And then from exaltation, he goes to judge. And guess what? He also has the one who can bring salvation and repentance and forgiveness. The one who rules is also the one that can dispense your forgiveness. He's judge. You turn to him, and he can dispense that forgiveness. And then he goes to empowerment. That's the fifth one. And we're witnesses of these things. Why? The Spirit of God's come upon us. We've bowed the knee to the Lordship of Christ. His Spirit has come upon us. And guess what? We get to declare who he is. We get to declare who he is. So Peter right there lays out the gospel in boldness. And he's saying, I can't mess with that message. Why do I have to obey God? Because God raised him from the dead. And you're the one. I'm not going to listen to you because you're the one who wanted him dead. And he's sitting there as judge. I'm not messing with his message. I'm not messing with his message. Because in that message is life. It's the words of life, as the angel said. So Peter preaches this. Notice what happens in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Okay, so you get the idea. Remember that Greek thing I said about like double enraged, wanted to kill, right? Those would be synonyms. But the reality is these guys are like crazy, screaming, probably ripping their coats, yelling, pounding on the table, people holding people back. You could just imagine it being one, a riot kind of moment as Peter's standing there proclaiming this message and the 11 are standing behind him and the council's wanting to destroy them. It's a chaotic moment. But this leads now to the declaration, right? You can't mess with the message. That's a divine mandate. You can't mess with it. 
No one can stop it. We can't mess with it. And so this is the truth then that we need to know. And there are actually two, what I, I like to point out, two declarations in here. One is by Gamaliel. Notice verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Now this guy is a very prominent leader in Israel. In fact, he was a guy, he ran a school. And Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was Saul, was actually brought to the school and this guy taught Saul the law. In Acts 22, we'll see this. He was the teacher. Parents brought their kids to his school and he was the wise leader of Israel. And he ran this Jewish school teaching young people the law. And Paul learned from this man, and he was the most respected theologian of the age. And he speaks. And notice what he says. First thing he says is, okay, let's get the 12 out of here. Because they might not survive if we don't get them out. So gets them out, verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Right? So let's take a cleansing breath. Let's just take a moment. Let's just be weary about what we do here. And now notice his rationale. Pretty simple rationale. For before these days, Phidias rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census, drew away some people. After him, he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So you get his advice, right? Pretty simple point. I don't have to work real hard to make that simple, right? It's right there. If it's of men, these guys come, you know, false prophets come all the time. Don't get all bent out of shape. Let them do their thing because false prophets are always proven to be false. But here's the deal, boys. If it's from God, you think you're going to stop it? Why? Here's the point I wanted you to get from the whole message. God backs his gospel with his power. Can't stop it. You can't stop it. You might think it's powerless. You might think it's powerless, but it's not. He backs it. This is what he's saying. And then on top of it, he tells them the obvious truth. And if it is from God, you'll be opposing God, which is, you know, bad. Okay? So notice verse 40. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They probably gave them all 39 lashes, just whipped them. Horrible moment. Could you imagine that, though? I mean, you've already kind of were manhandled, thrown in prison let out, brought in before this council, chaos ensues, and then you're brought back, and then you're beaten 39 times. That's probably what happened. You know, you know the, they did it 39 times because the law says no one could be beaten more than 40 times. So in case the guy loses count, he didn't want to be in violation of the law, so they would do it 39 times. That's what legalism does to you, by the way. <laughs> Makes you come up with crazy things like that. But they flogged him. <clears throat> And I can't imagine that. I mean, I just can't. I just can't imagine having all the flesh off your back ripped off. 
you know, just horrible, horrible thing. But this leads us to the second declaration by the disciples. Notice verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, that the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. What I want to, two things I want to point out. First of all, the obvious one, verse 42, they continued to preach Christ. They didn't back down in the face of this beating. But the second thing that Jeff mentioned in his prayer earlier, that they rejoiced, like they walked out of that meeting going, thank you, Jesus. Like in our mindset, in our culture, we kind of think if Jesus is on our side, everything should work, right? Isn't that true? So when problems come down, we say, why are you bringing me these problems? Somehow we're like completely backwards. Jesus said, hey, listen, you're going to take up your cross and follow me. They hated me. What are they going to do to you? I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Like all these really powerful statements that like, it's really going to be hard. And then us, right, our weak Western people, we're like, oh, there's a problem, God. Why? Don't, do you hate me? Why do you hate me, God? And he's saying, hey, did you read what I said? Right? I had lots of words about how hard it's going to be. Lots of words. We have to, like, kind of shift our thinking. Like, I get challenged by this to say, this is going to be hard. And here's the, the amazing thing. Could we say, thank you, God, for counting me worthy to suffer? Could we say that? That's, that's the mindset shift. That's the, the unique surprise in the text. It wasn't God, get rid of this government. Get rid of these leaders. Kill them off, God. Get rid of them so that we could live in peace. So thank you, God that I got to be embarrassed and humiliated and thrown in prison and mishandled and then beaten. Thank you that I got to walk in the same path you walked for the sake of Jesus. It's an amazing thought. It's a, there's a lot to, to, to process between all of us and God in that and, and, and shifting our mindset. Because here's the reality. The message of the cross is backed by the power of God, but it, it sits within a world that hates it. And so resistance is going to come. But the resistance is not the sign of the weakness of the power of God. The sign of the power of God is that 12 people could walk out of a room praising God and keep going. Say, this is great. I get to walk in the path of Jesus. I get to suffer like he did. He counted me worthy to join in his sufferings. Powerful statement. So here's the point. Let's wrap it up here. Simple point. God backs his gospel with his power. We don't need to be afraid that it won't work. We don't need to be afraid of men. Yes, you might get humiliated. Yes, you might pay, the, pay for being faithful to the word. People might come against you. That might all be true. It will be true. But it doesn't mean that the gospel is not effective. It has the power to change. It has the power to change you to walk in. It has the power to change people around you. And in the midst of opposition, there are still tens of thousands of people placing their faith in Christ. Because, as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. 
It's the power to save and the power to change people. So God backs it, his gospel with his power. And so courage then comes from knowing that this thing that we live and proclaim is backed by God himself. It's backed by God himself. And I think the wisest thing for us to do would be right now just to pray and say, God, allow me to believe this so that I would be bold. So why don't we just pray that together now? Close your eyes with me. Father, I'm amazed at the power of the gospel. You showed these people that nothing could stop it. And God, I just pray now for us that we would be mindful of that reality that you back your gospel with your power. And so God, keep us from shrinking back. Challenge our hearts because we think in terms of comfort, not in terms of discomfort. We think in terms of earthly deliverance instead of eternal deliverance. And so, Lord, just help us to have a mindset to think about being counted worthy to suffer for this gospel that has the power to change people's lives. Help us not to change it, alter it, shrink back from it, but to boldly declare it. In Christ's name, amen.